Okay, so what are you going to do in the meantime while they're stealing all your shit? Leave me the fuck alone. The, the vendors are trying to find the problem space as the problem they can solve. I'm not your tech support, bitch. Fuck off. So I'm constantly going, no, 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 stop that, put that down, don't touch that, take that out of your mouth. And it just drives me fucking crazy. And if these motherfucking lawn care people don't fucking get the hell out of here, I'm going to go fucking postal. Where the fucking thing's got a, like a V8 engine on the back of it. Well, shall we get rolling here? All right, we shall. Today is Monday, July 21st, 2014, and this is episode 77 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Hey, good evening, Jerry. Good to see you. Good to see you. Likewise. Likewise. And uh, as usual, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employers. So... I uh, I don't have any updates from Bob this week. I, I'm I, I've heard he's stuck somewhere east of here. Maybe next week. Uh, so kind of jumping into stories this week, we have uh, the big. I think the big story of the week comes from Business Week, well, titled "How Russian Hackers Stole the Nasdaq." And this is a really extensive story, and you know, I, I would caution readers to keep in mind that there's a lot of unknowns in this particular story. And so just kind of going through the, the, the commentary that is in the story, apparently sometime around the end of 2010, early 2011, it became known through some un, <laughs> unknown means that the NASDAQ had been compromised somehow. And uh, that set in motion quite a lot of activity within the government. There's not a lot of clarity in the actual timeline of when they approached NASDAQ themselves. Uh, however, there, there there's a lot of detail on what I would characterize as a power struggle between a bunch of law enforcement agencies. And, and I would say that, to me, that's one of the more interesting aspects of the stories is seeing some of that, that push and pull. Um, but th- be that as it may, um, basically the, the the kind of the subtext of the story is that the NSA and a couple of other law enforcement agencies attributed this attack to Russia, Russian intelligence agencies, and then the uh, based on on uh, attribution of the malware that was found, and then they later came to the conclusion that no, it wasn't. Russians. It was Chinese who had obtained the Russian malware, and then uh, then they actually went back to it being Russians, but probably not the, uh, the the intelligence agencies. Probably somebody actually trying to steal intellectual property to set up their own uh, exchange or optimize the existing exchanges in Russia. So, having said all that, it, it's it's pretty clear in this story and another story that. There's really not a lot of clarity in what actually happened, who the real adversary was, and uh, and whatnot. So I did think there were a couple of other interesting takeaways here. Um, number one was that the uh, the government did a investigation on Nasdaq's network after they got permission, and uh, they characterized it as a dirty swamp. 
which I thought was was really nice. Uh, they found that there were a number of other hackers, including criminal gangs and Chinese spies, that had been on various systems in the NASDAQ network for a period of years. Apparently, there were also um, not a lot of logging going on, which was a bit of a headwind. And another interesting tidbit was that the building management companies website had been uh, had been compromised and was serving up the black hole exploit kit and uh, you know the the implication there is that all the tenants in this building of which the Nasdaq was one uh, who might have gone to pay bills or whatever uh, would in turn get infected so um, there's there's also some I would say pretty maddening accusations that uh, attempts at attribution, I should say, that uh, because there were apparently zero days involved in this, that it could only have been government actors. And and by the way, there's still no disclosure about what zero days were actually used uh, or how they were used or even technically if there were, they really were there. So there's... There's there's a whole lot of uh, of swirling speculation about this, but you know I thought there were some some interesting takeaways. But before I go into that, I wanted to to get your take. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. I a couple of takeaways for me. First, this was noted by the FBI originally on quote a system monitoring U.S. internet traffic. Interesting. So. Do we have the FBI out there with some big-ass snort boxes watching for various indicators of compromise as they flow across various Tier 1 backbone providers? I mean, wh- where exactly is that box? What exactly is it watching? I'm kind of curious about that. Um, and if that's the case, why aren't we picking up more things than just occasional things like this? Are they being selective? Do they not have very good tech? Makes me wonder. It also makes me wonder if, obviously, NASDAQ did not have very good monitoring, did not have very good malware detection going on, and all these other bad guys running around their network. I wonder how prevalent that would be if you took any large, complex network and took a really long, hardcore forensic look at it. Right? What is the prevalence of that? I'd say it's probably pretty high. I'd say there's a whole bunch of organizations that have a whole bunch of stuff running around they don't know about. Yeah, I would agree with that. And in fact, um, they make a they make a mention to how they um, how the Treasury Department and a couple of other agencies uh, shook the bushes and went and and tried to look at a couple of other financial institutions and stock exchanges. And it, they didn't get a whole lot of cooperation, but apparently, where they did, it sounded like. Uh, you know, again, the, the the details here are kind of sparse, but you know, quote they were they were also vulnerable to the same kind of attack. So you know, take that for what it is. But um, you know, does that mean they were running the same version of Outlook, or does that mean they were, you know, they, they had the same mainframe or the same trading application? There's really not a lot of detail what that actually meant. But I think you're I think you're right that. You know, especially my experience is in a lot of a lot of larger companies. 
things are expansive and you you see kind of every permutation you can imagine some parts of it are managed well and some parts of it are managed are managed pretty badly and and uh you know it's it's hard to separate them the other thing that i think is pretty telling is and this is something i think we're going to talk more about the problem of attribution is really 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 difficult yes and fraught with peril and not something that i think <sighs> Hmm. I don't know if I I don't know if I mean this, but I don't know if attribution is all that helpful. In this case, they're trying to figure out if a nation state is doing something on the level of espionage. They're trying to understand that. I get that, but for the average organization, does attribution really matter, or are we just trying to stop the bad guy, whoever the bad guy may be? I think it's the latter to be to be perfectly honest. You know, there are there's a lot of uh, out there right now. There's a lot of opinion and whatnot around understanding your attacker and what their capabilities are and on and on and on, but at the end of the day, that's a, that's becoming a really hard thing because you know, attackers are learning from each other and so Yeah. You know, it's 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 difficult to pin the tail on the donkey and say that well, this this group can only do that. You don't, you know, I think you, I think it's more fraught with peril than it is a benefit. Um, you know, another thing that I thought was, was really interesting, and this is kind of straying into the area of politics, but the, the, apparently some of these uh, law enforcement agencies other than the NSA thought that the NSA was overplaying some of their accusations about how important and how uh, how advanced this attack was because they they felt like the NSA was trying to secure their position as the protector of private enterprises. Yeah, that's a common sort of theme that we've heard before. This is also a really stark example of the dysfunction going on in the government over how to deal with these situations. There clearly is no... A chain of command. There clearly is a whole bunch of turf wars going on because inevitably there's a budget associated with this that they want control of. And I don't think it does us a good a good service. I personally think probably good private enterprises would have done a better job forensically responding to this than the government did. I really don't feel that the CIA or the NSA or any of these other organizations have better IT security forensic assets than the private market. Uh, I I would agree. I think the only the only difference is that the um, I think those those organizations are hoovering up a bunch of crap that they can go back and do some yeah. retrospective analysis on, and I suspect that's their Hopefully. only only real advantage. Hopefully, yeah, and and there's a mention too when the CIA starts reaching out to you know, human intelligence contacts and such. I think that is definitely valuable. Yeah, my other takeaway is something we've talked about over and over and over again, which is that if you don't have the basics done right in your network, if you don't have the instrumentation, if you don't have the logging, if you don't have the the aggregation of all of your information and the ability to really monitor what's going on, you are very much behind the eight ball when it comes to a forensic response. You have to instrument ahead of the attack to really be successful in doing a forensics uh, endeavor. Yeah, absolutely. So get, getting into takeaways, my, my number one was uh, that attribution is hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, number, number two is that you can end up in the news years later. 
right? Years after an attack. So, so what's not what we really haven't mentioned yet is that again, this happened quite some time ago, and uh, the the government basically let the Nasdaq handle it from a PR perspective, however they saw fit. And so, the Nasdaq at the time was in the lead up to them trying to acquire. I think was it the NYSE or some other stock exchange. Yep, yep NYSE. And uh, and so you know, obviously, it was kind of a a, a contentious time. And they released an email uh, statement about this that I would say pretty much downplayed it. And uh, you know, so so here you, you, I think one of the lessons that you have to understand is that at some point the the dirty laundry could come forward whether you you want to or not. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, obviously, it gets a lot of headlines. It gets a lot of press. It's a big deal, especially you know following the hedge fund attack that wasn't. Yes, you know, everybody's sort of kind of on a trigger for these sorts of stories right now. It's tough to know because we don't really know what happened, and there's so many vague details that it's really hard to take away anything that you can learn from other than you really need to get the basics right in your environment. If if NASDAQ was the cesspool of poor IT security internally, shame on them. And But I don't think they're alone in that. That doesn't make it right. But I think the vast majority of complex networks are like that, which is a problem. Yeah. Yep. See, another, another takeaway I had written down was that highly complex malware and tactics that have been developed by militaries and intelligence agencies are are probably more and more becoming used by you know anybody and there's another story in here later that talks about a similar a similar kind of thing and that goes back to the problem of attribution but also of why it is so important to do you know to to do good due diligence because you know the the capabilities of the average attacker are going up and we have to you know i think we have to recognize that and you know they could potentially be taking step function increases based on the availability of some of this stuff that's being developed and then my last takeaway was that logging is still important damn it <laughs> bah. that's so old school you old man i know i know that's uh crazy so all right um the next next story we have comes from the TechNet blog and the title is incident response the importance of antivirus and this by the way is is really just a blog post but i thought it worthwhile to talk about for the record in our show notes we actually have two stories about nasdaq so if you see on the show notes yes that's, yeah, that's right so we, we kind of merged them together it's in a, our discussion it's a twofer that's yes. Right. The second one was titled, uh, I think it was titled, uh, let's see, NASDAQ Hack Attribution Questioned. So, yeah. uh, in so, any, any event. Yep. Yeah. Sorry. Moving on. Moving on. It's in the show notes. You can read it at your leisure. Uh, so, so the again, the title of this, this uh, TechNet blog article is Incident Response, the Importance of Antivirus. And I'll sum it up. And a lot of this stuff is... It's things we've talked about in the past. Um, number one was to pay attention to your AV logs, right? Because even though AV, I think we can all agree, is not all that effective, it does catch some stuff. And 
Uh, in particular, if you if you're seeing errors like failure to scan a file, maybe that's an interesting thing that you ought to go look at because it could indicate that something is is amiss. Um, and you should you should know how to contact your AV vendor ahead of time in in an emergency. And you should also know what they can do for you in different kinds of circumstances. You know, so if you're you know, if, if if you're completely shut down, how fast can they turn around a DAT file? Can they fly somebody out? You know, can what can they do for you if the worst were to happen? Given your um, your agreement with them, you know, obviously different companies will be able to afford different levels of service, but you know, clearly everybody has the opportunity to be affected pretty badly. And you know, if, if you're thinking that your AV vendor has your back, and you know your your 50 computer network is dead and you you know you, all you're getting is voicemail then that's not a great thing um the the author gives a couple of anecdotes in, in the in the form of stories about um you know one one case where he saw some some penetration in a in a customer network and uh you know, basically they didn't know that it was there but what he found was that AV had actually logged some events that if they had, if, if the, this company had actually paid attention to it, they would have seen it, uh, you know, seen it ahead of time or, or as it was happening and would have had an opportunity to respond. Uh, and then, you know, the other, the other was again, going back to uh, working with your vendor. Uh, he, he points out that a company had, uh, basically been wiped off the network by a, a conficker like virus and it took over 50 hours from the initial infection to when they got signatures from their AV provider so I think uh, I think those are some some good lessons yeah the other thing I'm seeing is some of the AV vendors are also doing more sort of forensic gathering work too on a, at a low level. So certainly there is an issue with once a box is infected, you have to be careful what you trust on that box. But it is helpful to be able to go out there and say, hey, does anybody see this registry key on a whole bunch of boxes and such? Um, and I'm seeing some of that kind of sneak into the AV industry a little bit, a little bit more sort of hardcore, hey, what did this box do at a file level and a registry level and a memory level and you know, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. So, yeah, definitely. It also it also helps when you have a when you have a larger network that hasn't been completely hosed yet. Uh, you know, if you can if you can get some, this isn't always possible, right? But if you can if you can get your AV vendor to provide detection for the thing that's hitting you, you can kind of cut it off at the pass, and you know, you still you still want to clean or not clean but rebuild those systems that were uh, that were in- infected but you know you could potentially limit your damage so there you have it all right our next story comes from search security and the title is report finds poor security communication among executives shocking totally shocking so uh, this is a pony mine report your favorite. It is my favorite. You love these guys. I, oh, they make me so mad. <laughs> and yet we keep using their stories. Well, it's so so. The the reason they make me mad, just so everybody knows, is 
that Poneman reports are opinion surveys. And you have to understand that, right? So the report... Tell us, Jerry, what's an opinion survey? <laughs> an opinion survey is when you call up a bunch of people and say, tell me what you think. Now, it's... why is that not necessarily good? Because it's not an objective measurement of of truth, right? So there are all sorts of reasons that people would would tell you one thing or another, right? They they are frustrated, they are uh they don't like their job, they don't like their boss, they are ignorant and they want to appear smart. There are so many different reasons why this is this is problematic. And the the problem the fundamental problem I have with Poneman reports is you know, I, I, again, I think that they are useful if you use them for what they are. But the problem is that's not how they're built, right? They're built as this deep insight into the, you know, the the inner workings of of IT security. And so, for instance, you know, they'll they'll say something like, "I'm reading from the report: communication roadblocks are a barrier to reducing the risk of a cyber attack," which, you know, I think seems intuitive enough. However, I'm not convinced that they actually build a case for that. So, um, but, but anyhow, I, I, I guess I digress. No, no, I, I took you down that hole. I just figured we'd cover it officially once. Yeah, no, I, I uh, anyhow, so back yeah, back to the report. So, you know, again, with, with that in mind, some of the there are some seemingly disturbing findings in here, such as that a third of the f- roughly five thousand security people they polled don't ever have discussions with their executives on the topic of security. Um, now, uh, you know, kind of going back to the you know the methodology, does that mean that no one has discussions with executives on security, or does that just mean they don't have discussions? with executives on security. And is that, you know, what, what does that mean? So that's, that's one of the problems I, you know, I have in particular. And would they know if their boss's boss's boss had discussions with executives, right? I, you know, I, those are some of the issues I've got with this. Um, you know, that going on 1% of the, the surveyed people have weekly discussions with executives, 11% are quarterly, 15% are on demand. Just kind of going on with some of the highlights that I wrote down. 29% believe that their entire security program needs to be totally overhauled. Um, half of them feel like their company doesn't invest in the technology or talent needed for security. You know, again, that's a that's an opinion, right? You know, it's not an objective <laughs> fact. We don't really know what they need. Um, 42% have implemented some form of threat modeling, which kind of says that, you know, the rest haven't. And that is a, a concern, although they don't, the, you know, again, one of the problems I have with the report is that's kind of just hanging out there. It's like, what other question can we ask? Oh, how about threat modeling? That sounds cool. And it, and it's, not integrated into the story at all. So I, anyway, um, let's see. Uh, f- they they point out forty eight percent don't provide 
at 48%, say their organizations do not provide security education to employees. Interesting. Um, Probably the most interesting thing in here to me was they asked the question, what do you fear most? 40% fear APT attacks the most. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the airplane crash. You know, you, people are dying on the roads all day long, and everybody yep. is afraid of the airplane crashing. And, and yeah. so, so it tells you that it's not a truly objectively measured concern. It's pure subjective right. opinion. Which, which again, is an interesting thing because that kind of says is that's what people are the most concerned about. That, to me, that probably says that that's you know that they they orient themselves in that direction. I'm I'm assuming, and what what does that in turn mean? I don't know the answer to that. It just is an interesting. I don't I don't know that I would buy that they orient them, themselves in that position. I would say maybe this more reflects it's where they think they should be oriented that they're not. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll buy that. Yep. I'll buy that. But again, it comes to I was having this discussion today with some folks about DDoS. And the concept with DDoS is that it's this huge, complex, difficult, many-faceted, many sort of angle of, of attack sort of thing. And when companies are saying, hey, should, should we go get Akamai or should we, you know, for DDoS or Prolexic or Arbor or whomever, why do you want to? Well, we want to stop DDoS. What does that mean to you? Well, you know, bad stuff comes flooding down our pipe. Why does that affect your business? My boss said I have to worry about DDoS. Right. <laughs> Hook me <And> up. <laughs> what I'm trying to get them to think about is – Let's war game it out. Let's really think through top 10 likely DDoS scenarios and how it would truly impact your business and then take a look at whether or not that impact is reasonable, something that you're willing to sustain for 8 hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, or if you need to have a backup plan or a mitigation. And I don't think a lot of companies really either have the time, the energy – they're caught in their own rat trap. They're, they're caught on the cycle of just respond, respond, respond. But very few companies that I've seen really take a solid step back and look at the big picture. What do I truly care about if I'm going to address this threat? Why do I want to address this threat? And it's, I think, an area we're failing pretty miserably as an organization, you know, as an as a industry. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, I, I I will tell you, my perception is that DDoS is becoming table stakes like firewalls and antivirus. Yeah. You know, it's, you, it is unfathomable that you wouldn't have AV or a firewall. You know, you just have to have that. And I, and I really think that for better or for worse, right or wrong, that I think DDoS is going in the, into that, into that bucket mm-hmm. too. And I, but I completely agree with your point that, you know, if... And by the way, there's other ways of managing that, right? I mean, right. There's you don't. There's there's possibly better ways to manage it, more economical ways, and absolutely. And, and that's the that's the killer, right? And and I think a lot of vendors aren't 
motivated to help you find that better way all the time. Because well, this is yeah, absolutely, hundred percent agree. This is something that again we have to be very careful when we're being educated by a sales team for a vendor uh, of what the issue is because they're defining the problem space as the problem they can solve. Yes, when. You're talking about something like a DDoS. Let's let's just pick on a vendor for a moment. And you know, you're talking about mm, a server resource exhaustion. That's not overwhelming your pipe. Maybe it is a box you put out in front of that. Maybe you take whatever that server is and move it to a constant content delivery network. Maybe you don't care. Right. Maybe you do some DNS load balancing. There's a whole bunch of different ways to address that problem other than buy a box of blinky lights. And you have to think it through. That's true. But, you know, it's difficult to show your management or a customer or, you know, somebody else. You know, if you don't have that blinky box, if you if you just designed it right, it's very difficult to show because there's no blinky lights to show. That's... Yeah. You so, know, circling... I, I had a business idea. Okay. Uh, okay. Wait, should we- should we not put this out over the airways? I, I don't so know. Can... I don't know. Maybe maybe somebody can can uh, you know we can go into business with with our now eighteen listeners. I thought, I thought we were up to nineteen. Maybe we probably but, but we probably disenfranchised them, somebody by now. Two of them are actually in a coma, and they just play this on a loop for them. Oh yes, that's true. So I, I apologize to any of our listeners who are in a coma. I, I did not mean to be insensitive. That that was pretty rude. So. So you know the, uh, the little signs you put up in your front yard that say, you know, protected by ADT or protected by whatever, right? What about a box? It's just a box that has blinky lights on the front. It is essentially the, equ- the functional equivalent of the ADT sign. It doesn't do a damn thing except sit in your rack and blink. Do you remember Airplane 2? Vaguely, that that was a rough time in my life. <laughs> there's there's a scene as I'm choking on my iced coffee. <laughs> so William Shatner's an airplane too, and there's a scene where they walk up to this big console that has blinky lights, and they're just trying to figure out what it does. And the guy is responding, "Well, it just seems to bleep, and then bing, and then sweep, and then beep." And this reminds me very much of this conversation. I'll have to find that little clip. Anyway, I love it. But, you know, you got to be able to tune the lights because some people want it in green. Some people want it in orange. Well, I'm thinking, too, You some people want to see that there's bad stuff happening a lot. And then some people want to see that there isn't much bad ha- stuff happening at all. And so you'd want to be able to tune the amount, the, the apparent amount of badness happening on your network. I think we should call it the compliance enforcer because that automatically would get budget. That's a great idea. Only $599. Oh, per per node. Right. Well, obviously. Per user. It, you it, it, but you would want to have an HA pair. Well, 599. Think big, my friend. Add some zeros on the end. I see. That's why that's why I need a I need a, you know, somebody with experience like you. <laughs> So circling back to our report. Sorry. Yes. No, no, it's Ooh. fine. No, it's all good. I'm, I'm hoping they, the audience enjoyed our little digression. Um, I think this all comes back to poor communication, right? This all comes back to communicating risk, communicating business impact, understanding so for the IT side, security side, understanding business impact, 
for you know, and then also being able to communicate to the rest of the organization that risk and what is a meaningful mitigation to that risk, I, I think matters. I agree. And you know, the problem is, and this is something that we we talk about a lot is businesses can't treat IT security like the fire department. They've got to treat them like the code enforcement division. You know, they've got to be involved up front to help with the infrastructure, with the, you know, the various products as they roll out, the various different services as they roll out. They need to be involved up front. If you're just calling them as triage after the fact, you're vastly crippling your ability to respond to these issues. Oh, I, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, something you said jogged something in my mind. You know, I, I have to wonder, what is the context by which you would have conversations, security-related conversations with executives? And why is it that these these conversations aren't happening? Is it because there is a propensity of security people to be too detailed? And executives, you know, want to be net and... You know, they, they they want to know that you have it handled, right? That's your function in the business. You are here to help me manage my risk. Come and talk to me about about that and work it out with your peers in IT and other, you know, in other parts of the business. I You know, it just, it just made me, uh, for some reason, it just popped in my head, you know, is the implication here that we're going to slog through a bunch of IT risk crap, with executives or is this, you know, and, and by the way, is that the reason why, you know, we see this or, you know, is it, is it a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You know, we, we did have these conversations and now, and now they actively avoid us. I, you know, I, I wonder. Yeah, it's a tough one. It really is a tough one because part of me says, this is why security needs a seat, you know, a seat at the executive board level um, and at the executive meeting level and that a good senior executive team should have just like they have a a loose grasp of legal issues should have a loose grasp of security issues or at least security risks so that they can ask the right questions and be open to the right discussion but absolutely a, a good CISO is in a really rough spot they've got to really be able to talk at multiple levels exactly and they really need to be able to talk to their audience appropriately, but they're not going to get their point across. Exactly. Um, and I think that in and of itself is a really difficult skill set to build because let's say you can communicate at the board level very, very, very well. You probably won't have much respect and be able to communicate at a technical level. True. Is, is one possible outcome. Or you're, you know, which is commonly the case, very technical, and so you end up reporting to a CFO and nobody listens to you. Uh, you know, and you cannot sell your concern and your visions, and so you can't really affect positive change. So it's a tough, tough gig, uh, you know. And I, I can't pretend to have done that, but I've seen it successfully executed. I've seen it more often not successfully executed. And where I see it not successfully executed, I often see an organization that's very responsive, and they're reacting to compliance issues, and they're reacting to. You know, they don't have a holistic vision of how all this stuff is going to fit together. They just sort of say, "Yeah, we need to fix DDoS. Let's go buy a DDoS box." Yeah, you know, I, I suspect at the end of the day, it's a failure of leadership, right? Because you would you have to think that the senior leadership team, you know, if they recognize that that's a real risk, they 
it's on them to to bring in somebody that can be at the table and and speak in business terms and then also translate into you know in into the more technical requirements but i you know i i have to think that there's kind of a push and a pull from both sides that's that's probably creating this this rift you know where the you know the uh the 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 it people get frustrated and you know look i've been on i've been on all sides of this this thing right and um i i i it just feel like there's there's it's not all the executive fault right and that's what i think no i agree yeah absolutely i, I think there's an undercurrent here that is saying that you know if just if the executives would just you know <laughs> swallow hard and come and talk to the security people uh things will be better and i i'm not convinced that that's you know clearly that will help so long as the discussions are had at the right level in in the right vernacular yeah it's a complex issue and i really think part of it also is not just getting the executives to ask the right questions uh I think that helps. You need you need an executive team who's open and receptive to these issues. Well, yeah, clearly, and and but and they're not all going going to be. I mean, they're, you're going right. to see everything. You're going to see some that are very open, and some that you know want to want to sell the IT department to the first first group that walks down the street. You know, because they they don't see the return on investment in security or, or whatever. Yeah. So I think you see every. I mean, I, I don't think it's it's really possible to say that this is the rule of thumb because I suspect that it's it's going to be some shade of gray, a different gray in every single organization. Yeah, I think that's the difficulty of the nuance of the of the situation is you really have to be able to understand the individual risks, the individual business opportunities, the individual culture of the company, understand the people involved, and then be able to affect good communication. Yep. yep. Uh, and you know, I think that's sometimes why people default to a framework. Uh, I agree. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm not sure that I agree with that methodology yet. I, I, I don't have a strong opinion, but the more I look into frameworks, the more I keep sort of in the back of my head coming back to this, this is helpful, but it's starting to feel a little more like a one size fits all, or I'm managing compliance, not my individual business. Yeah. Um, but you know, I don't want to frame all frameworks, no pun intended, under the same guise of being that. I think it is useful. You, you need to have some plan to measure your progress against. So I don't want to throw frameworks out, out the window, but I still, in the back of my mind, I'm going, this doesn't seem nuanced enough. It seems, I don't know, something. For, for, what, for what they are, frameworks, I... I think are useful, but I think the I think what you're what you're trying to get at is some people try to use that as your you know as your plan, and yeah. that's that's not that's not always helpful. I mean, certainly if you're starting from nothing, a right. lot of, a lot of times that can be very informative to make sure you've got all your bases covered. But you know, otherwise it's it can just create a mess. So anyhow, moving on to a couple of other points, sixty seven percent of the respondents here said that it would take the theft of intellectual property to, uh, to shake some sense into their executive team to invest more money in, in uh, security, you know, which, you know, I, I, to be honest, that kind of jives with my view of reality. You know, 
you don't get money for DR plans until you've had a disaster, you know, that, that sort of thing. So um, the, uh, the other thing in here that was uh, probably the most disappointing, there was a question about how you keep up, you the surveyed person, how you keep up with the threat landscape or changes to the threat landscape. And the number number one way was casual conversations with security leaders. And I was totally bummed that there was no podcast option. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. I got to tell you, I, I when I got to that point, I had to start drinking heavily. Oh, right there with you, man. The one thing, though, that I did like is that they brought out threat modeling um, as a viable alternative to this sort of thing. And I've, I've started to become a big fan of threat modeling, although I will tell you, I like external third parties doing your threat modeling because they don't have the biases and the political issues of internal folks. Yeah, I, I, again, I, you know, I thought I, I agree with you on threat modeling. I think it's a, I think it's a sensible thing. Um, I thought it was just really a weird fit into this article. You know, it was... Yeah, it did kind of take a left turn. <laughs> Let's just ask a bunch of questions and then, oh, yeah, what about threat modeling? But but anyway, I, I agree with you on that, so... The way I took it was, let's get something on paper that the executives can look at as a report. Uh, I think threat modeling is a better way of doing it than just a random pen test to get their attention. Fair, fair point. Fair point. So... All right, let's move, in, uh, move on. Uh, we probably lost uh, half of our listeners already. So That's true. Our next story comes from darknet.org.uk.mil.something else. Uh, my, the title is Microsoft says you should sh- should reuse passwords across sites. Double face palm. And I, I know that you loved this article, and I love this article so much that I actually wrote my own crazy thing about it. But... I, I get their point. Well, first of all, okay, let's go yeah, ahead and summarize the article. Okay. But, I, so, yeah. so Microsoft, along with a university whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, came up with this research paper. And it's in the form of, an, of any academic research paper you'll come across. And the, the idea was to figure out mathematically – what your strategy should be or what 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 is the optimal strategy for passwords and you know is the is the common advice about strong passwords and unique passwords a good one and and whatnot and uh, so so they actually go through some really interesting interesting to me um, machinations on figuring out you know what what is reasonable for people to remember in terms of password complexity and numbers of passwords and what is the you know the the likely loss related to different different kinds of accounts that are compromised and a few other odds and ends and and essentially what they do is they come up with an optimizing function that uh that shows the the best case again keeping in mind the point that you're trying to remember the passwords. The best case is that you save your strong passwords for those very few accounts that are high risk. And for everything else, you use really trivial stuff because you you, you basically don't have the amount of brain power it takes to remember really complicated passwords across that are different across many different sites. And And by the way, I agree that you can't. 
right? I, I, you know, I think that's that's one of those kind of intuitive points, right? We can all agree that you can't remember a uh, hundred 12-character random passwords. It's it's just unreasonable. And and I think that is the, you know, ultimately their point. But where I where I have a big problem in, in this particular article, I, I found somebody that agreed with me, so that's why we're using it. Um, why don't you use a password manager? And, and uh, you know, it goes deeper than that. And, and the, the thing that I wrote, my one of my points was, you know, this the, the whole concept here assumes that you live in one world. You as a, you know, a person live in just one world. You have you have one set of things to worry about. But the reality is most of us don't, right? We've got our we've got import, important personal stuff. We got important work stuff. And by the way, you know, your employer isn't going to view any of those accounts as an unimportant, right? So everything that you have to 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 use for them is going to, you know, be expected to be complicated and and strong. And you know, you then you you have this uh, you know, you got your personal stuff too. And I think it's just totally unreasonable to think that you're going to be able to remember that many complex passwords, let alone the complete, uh, you know, I'll probably regret saying this, right? But the complete insanity about using trivial passwords and reusing trivial passwords across sites that you infer or or suppose are unimportant. And, and again, that, boy, there's just so many problems I have with this, right? People don't sit down when I log into a site, and and I I suspect most people are like this. We don't make a value judgment that says, "Boy, you know, okay, this is just this is just uh, you know my Reddit account, or or oh, you know what, this is my this is my uh, my bank account, so I better use a really strong password." You know, it is passwords. Setting passwords stand between you. And getting something done, and it is it is it is not something we generally spend a whole lot of time on. And I feel really strongly that the best the the best most optimal answer for a whole bunch of reasons is to use a password manager that sets a random password for every site. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to. You, have to, you don't have to sit there trying to, okay, well, how, how am I going to remember this? Well, I don't want to write it down because then I violate company policy. But Jerry, Jerry, what happens if the password manager get at, gets hacked? Oh you know people are screaming at that right now. Well, you know, they actually talk about that. In, you know, they, they do talk a little bit about password managers and, you know, they, they call it a concentration of risk. And, and I agree. What I find really weird, I guess, is they actually say that the same kind of threat that would lead to the disclosure of all of your passwords in a password manager would lead to the disclosure of all your passwords in a more conventional way because it's probably somebody has a rat on your computer and they're they're keylogging or they're recording all of your activity anyway. So 
what I see out of that debate of, well, if you use a password manager, then you can get all your passwords at once, is we're now playing gotcha politics and gotcha security yeah. guy, right? Where you can always poke a hole. There is no perfect solution. Right. The, the idea is to reduce your risk to an acceptable level. You're never going to get to zero. Yeah, absolutely. You can, your password manager can get popped. Absolutely. You're not going to disagree with that. And you could totally also be not. kidnapped by the Russian <laughs> Federation. They could put a gun to your head, and you know, but you don't have a mitigation strategy for that, do you, wise guy? Nope. Nope. So use a, use a stinking password manager. I, yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't I, understand why it's so hard. But every, Everything you just said, I agree with. But by the way, you know, having said all that... Here's the one other thing I want to throw out there. I think it is disingenuous to believe that people are going to be able to have the mindset on a day-by-day basis to understand the risk involved in a poor password on one site versus another site. I don't think the average person has that ability. And even if they did, they're not going, generally, probably not going to spend the amount of time because, again, it is standing between you and the thing you're trying to accomplish, right? You, Much pe- like this podcast is standing between me and dinner. Exactly right. So, <laughs> so um, you know, it, no, so, I, I think it's easier for the grandmas of the world and everybody else. You need a unique password on every site. You're not going to remember it. Here's a password manager. It integrates with all of your stuff, including your phone, your iPad, whatever it is. Just use this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Be done with it. it makes life it makes life so much easier you'll be you'll be a happier person you'll have more time in the day you know the other thing that that uh, uh, by the way i really thought that the the thought process behind these researchers was really fascinating right i, I want to go through and actually read it again without the latent anger about what they were recommending but I want to go back through it again because I thought it was really cool the way they were going through and, and quantifying different things. I want to go through and think about that I, I more. I get but, it. But this, once again, is where I see academics don't get the real world. I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to dispute that. I'm, just, I'm, I'm more interested about the mechanics behind No, no, I math. know. Cause, because, you know, you're a statistical math nerd. I get that. I got no problem with that. I just, you know. But, um, but yeah, I, I, so I, I have uh, – I've got a I got a big big problem with that. The other the other issue I have is it totally doesn't account for changing your password every nine days. Yeah, they don't say a damn thing about that. So <laughs> <laughs> or two factor or yeah or two factor right right you know I mean there's 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 just such a lot of different factors in there. But anyway. Um, Interesting or stuff. Or any management or how you handle all that kind of jazz. Yep. Yep. So, uh, but I, I, I thought this was interesting because it, it got a lot of, a uh, lot of, a lot of play and a lot of press, you know, and, and it, it was definitely clickbait. You know, there was lots of articles that say Microsoft yeah. says to use one, two, three, four, five, six as your password or, you know, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's true. Okay, All right. moving on. Uh, next, next is a is a, is a very brief one. This is a report from a company called Sentinel Labs. It's titled "The Case of uh, Gosh." I'm going to slaughter the name Gyges, G Y G E S, the invisible malware. And this kind of goes back. And the reason I included it is because 
it ties back to the Russian NASDAQ story at the beginning, right? The, the, the whole point of this is this security company found a piece of malware out there that has a really sophisticated and very well refined and they assert um, originating from from the Russian intelligence agency, uh, some Russian intelligence agency, I should say, um, as a, I guess it's the dropper, right? They call it the, I don't know exactly what they call it, but but um, I suppose it's the dropper. But basically, they they, uh, they say that this thing has uh, some very sophisticated evasion techniques. But the thing that it actually installs is just basic crimeware, and you know, not nothing particularly special. And and so, you know, their their hypothesis is that uh, this, you know, th- this really sophisticated delivery mechanism that's that's able to evade detection and whatnot has been picked up by some more traditional criminals you know i don't know if that is true or or if that's not true however i suspect that if it isn't true already it will be true and as as we go forward and that's one of the concerns i have with all of this crap that's going on with you know the nsa and all the different intelligence agencies and whatnot you know, I, I get it. People are going to spy on each other, right? But we have to be under we have to understand that there's going to be second order consequences when people you don't expect to get their hands on it do get their hands on it and they learn from your techniques. And now you got a big mess on your hands because you know people that you don't you didn't expect to adopt your techniques and tools are now using them to exploit your your population. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Exactly. All right, and our last story comes from InfoWorld. The title is "Sorry." Oh, by the way, going back, you know, I, I, I think the point I wanted to make there is from a from a defensive side. You know, we we've got to make sure we've got our bases covered, right? And and we also have to. We also have to kind of, I think, balance the whole thought process that says, "Well, you know, we're not the, we're not the the target of a nation state." But you know, the reality is, you know, you might not be the target of a nation state, but you might be the target of a criminal gang that's got their tools. Right. Yeah. Once again, we go back to assuming that only a nation state has sophisticated tools. But as we've seen time and time again, the bad guys only need to be. As sophisticated as your lack of defenses allow. True. That's true. At the end of the day, you're probably not that hard of a target. Exactly right. Because somebody can send a picture of a cute cat video and somebody's going to click on it. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That almost never happens. All right. Back back to the last story. This one comes from InfoWorld. Title is, Sorry Cloud Resistors. Control does not equal security. And boy... What a nut, what a way to close out, right? So the the whole, the, it's a very very short article, which I will summarize as saying, the recent spate of breaches like Target and Sony and others demonstrates that controlling the environment doesn't equal security, and and there's actually a quote in here that says data actually data is actually more secure on public clouds than it is on unsecured local systems. 
And, um, you know, I, I yeah. guess, I, I guess, you know, if you can, cons- if, if you compare a secured cloud versus an unsecured local system, I suppose, you know, I think that, I think what it totally does not address is the, you know, thinking specifically about public clouds again, right? Is the, you know, the, the code spaces kind of deal, right? There's a whole, it's kind of like letting people into your data center all the time, right? It's- well, and public cloud can mean a ton of different things. If we're talking AWS, at the end of the day, you own the OS. You own pretty much all of the security at the OS level. Mm-hmm. If it's, I don't know, maybe a bit more managed service sort of cloud, they might be doing a lot of infrastructure hardening and OS hardening and patching for you, in which case, hey, you know, they've got the hygiene down for you. That's helpful. Yep. Right? So it's it's a loose statement. That's right. It doesn't define what sort of cloud we're really talking about here. Yeah, and it, I think I think it's it's a bad bit of advice to say that, you know, just out of to dismiss the concerns about cloud out of hand because it really depends on how you implement it. I have seen quite a few people who for whatever reason you know, have no business running systems in a cloud, but they do it because it's really freaking easy and cheap. And and they get hacked and they're, they're like, what the heck happened? It was in the cloud and the cloud is secure, right? No. So, I... But at the same time, this goes to everything we've said, ultimately. There is no one-size-fits-all. Exactly. There is no default button. There is no easy button. You still have to look at it in the context of your information, your business, your culture. Exactly. And and I feel like we're a broken, broken record on the topic. But you never know when somebody picks up our podcast for the first time and you know hears this stuff for the first time. So I like to touch on the key topics. Well, I agree with you there. All right. Well, that is, uh, that is the show for this evening and for this week. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you, Mr. Callett. Oh, thank you, sir. Always a good time. And, uh, you know, DerbyCon is approaching, and I think we'll both be there, right? Yes, I have approval from the overlords at the, you know, business place to uh, let me go. So Awesome. That's yes. going to be great. And uh, in the meantime, if you have any thoughts or opinions or suggestions or complaints, send an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can find back episodes and show notes and links to all the stories we talk about on the website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will call it a week. Talk to you again later. Bye. Bye-bye.